Continuing with our Exodus series, we're now moving into Exodus chapter 7. And we're really going to be picking up from verse 14. And this is the first of two talks that are related to what are commonly known as the ten plagues that the Lord brings on Egypt. Now I'm going to deal quickly and in a summary way with the first five and then next week it will be continued on. The title for today's talk is really God's Power and Mercy Revealed. Now the plagues are given for a purpose. And we'll see that plagues is a name that sort of is a catch-all. But God actually calls them signs, wonders and judgments. So God is showing his power. And at the same time is extending his mercy. And mercy is seeing someone in predicament. And having compassion for that person. But not stopping at merely having a feeling of compassion towards someone. It is actively doing something about it. That's what mercy is. Seeing a predicament, having compassion and acting in accordance with that which is sparked in the spirit to come and to deal. That's God's mercy in a nutshell. We're going to read in a moment uh, from 7 verse 14 onwards. But I want us, as we're reading, just a portion of the section that's before us, um, to see that God uses natural And supernatural, and when I say supernatural, it's in the sense that above and beyond what we would expect in the natural um, order of things, God uses both natural and supernatural processes to, one, convince us of his power and the reality (coughs) of his being there, his existence. Secondly, he uses natural and supernatural processes to grant us opportunity to acknowledge him as God and thirdly he uses natural and supernatural processes that we might humble ourselves having seen his power realizing that he's there recognizing that he is giving us an opportunity to acknowledge that he is there and who he is then humble ourselves under his sovereign authority over all things and our own lives. So God's revelation of himself in creation is a glorious thing. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist said. And that coupled with God speaking directly to us, and we have it in his word, as he would do, as we'll see in a moment, he was speaking directly through an intermediary to Pharaoh. God's glory displayed in his power over creation, plus his word coming. And we've been thinking this morning in our worship service of the word becoming flesh. It requires the appropriate response to God if we are to know salvation from that sin that rejects him and has its eternal consequences. Let's read together. It's quite a long reading, but stick with me for this. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it'll be a little different from some of your Bibles. Exodus 7 and 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. 
Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall le be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them into heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Down to verse 22. The next plague is a plague of flies. In verse 22, the Lord, speaking to Pharaoh again, says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord, in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. The fifth plague 
is the Egyptian livestock dying. Chapter 9, just for one verse. Verse 4. Again, the Lord God speaking through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh says, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel will die. It says that at the very beginning there of the portion we've read that uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. John may have dealt with this a little last week. I just want to say something very quickly on it. The heart in Old Testament and New Testament, particularly in the Old Testament, the heart speaks and signifies the whole of the intellect and the will and the emotions by which someone acts. So it's everything that's caught up in what we do. So it's not just something that sits in and does nothing. It results in action. So here's the heart of Pharaoh being hardened and it's evidenced in his actions. Just to say on this, it's a difficult one because it says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Some people find that difficult. It does does say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Actually, in Exodus, on 10 occasions, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. On 10 occasions, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. One commentator has put it this way, it's as much Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. God knowing all things was knowing Pharaoh's response, but he was acting out something as well and achieving his work, which would be the redemption of his people ultimately. But Pharaoh was responsible, God was sovereign. That's a truth that runs throughout scripture, that God is sovereign over everything, knowing the end from the beginning, but holds all of us, each one of us, accountable for our response to him. It's there in equal measure in Exodus. The Lord hardening his heart. Pharaoh hardening his heart. How did the Lord, who is sovereign, (coughs) harden Pharaoh's heart? Difficult question to ask, but I think there's an answer to it. It's by the Lord's repeated, gracious and patient (coughs) demonstration, particularly in this instance over a period of more than six months, of his power, his judgment, and his mercy. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart by extending patiently to him his power, his judgment, and his mercy. That's important. Because God was not acting as he had every right to against a sinner. And we're in the same boat to destroy us instantly for our rebellion against him. But he extends in his patient grace the declaration of his glory. He shows us his judgment and he extends to us mercy. What's our reaction to that? Just before we go on to thinking about the matter in hand here, God has displayed those three aspects of who he is in Christ. So for us as believers, then it's a joy for us to remember who Christ is. God the Son who came into humanity. That the power of God which has already been displayed in the grandeur of the universe that he's made would be seen here in human flesh. There's the power of God. But the power of God would be seen as well in God's judgment. And Christ 
the Son of God was the one who came to suffer God's judgment against sin for those who would believe in him to be the Saviour. There is God's judgment, his power and his judgment. And we see it at the cross when the perfect, sinless Son of God would give himself for sinners. There is God's demonstration of judgment. It's also the place where sinners find and know the mercy of God. But we have to respond to it. There is the compassion. God's compassionate heart towards sinners who have ignored him, have insulted his rights as the sovereign. The seriousness of insult rises depending on how dignified somebody is. There is no one greater than God. So to ignore him is the ultimate insult and he has every right as the righteous one to destroy. But yet he has demonstrated his power in what we see around us and in Christ. He shows us judgment in the things that happen in the world. But he demonstrates his judgment most fully when Christ, the Son, suffered the judgment of God for our sin. And that is him extending his mercy to us. He saw us in our sinful predicament and out of compassion has come to give himself that we might be brought out. There's action. So Pharaoh hardened his heart even though God all the while was extending the mercy to him. The language in the earlier part of chapter 7, verse 3, it says, God says, I will multiply my signs and wonders. Signs and wonders is a declaration of God's power and authority over the created order. In verse 4, he said, I will bring Israel out by great acts of judgment. So they were judgment at the same time. God displaying his power was also at the same time in a broken fallen creation a demonstration of his judgment against sin. Acts of judgment were there to induce a repentance. A repentance of sin. In seeing the glory of God we would turn from our own way and acknowledge him as the sovereign and see that he has extended mercy and forgiveness to us in Christ. Notice in verse 16, as we read together, Moses, you tell Aaron to say to Pharaoh, you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. We've already asked you. Pharaoh, I've already asked you to do this. But so far you have not obeyed. God demands of us obedience to who he is. And he demands obedience to the good news of the gospel. Christ came and said, believe. That's an action. It comes from the heart, but it is evidenced in what we do. It's the intellect, the will, the emotions that is then expressed in action. To believe in Christ, to receive the mercy of God, is not merely a mental assent to something. It shapes the whole of your life because your actions will be different thereafter. So then, into these uh, ten plagues, as they're commonly known, or if we would call them, according to Scripture, signs, wonders, and judgments, just those three words are, are useful. There's a, a little bit of a pattern that's repeatedly um, in these. I'll give it to you quickly, and then we're just going to focus in on the five 
um, in summary at the end to draw some lessons out. The first three, you, you can group them into groups of three. I know there's ten, but go with me on the maths here. Uh, three, three and three, and then the final one stands on its own really because it's the judgment of the death of the firstborn. But you've got a group of three at the beginning and you can call them an irritation because you've got the Nile being turned to blood. You've got the frogs coming up and getting into everything, even into the bowls that you've been eating your, your flour in. And, uh, and that's tiny wee things that are just irritants. That's the first three. There's your, your first little bunch. The second three are more severe. And you can see how God is graciously extending his mercy while all the while ramping up, in a sense, the severity of his judgments. The third three is flies. And these would be big things, and probably with big bites. Uh, many commentators would say they would probably be dog flies. I once was in uh, North America, Mount Forest Camp, and I got chased by a deer fly. I come back from a run one morning, and this thing was buzzing around me. It was big. And I, I just couldn't get rid of it. And I ran across the field back to my cabin, and this thing followed me. And fortunately, we had a, a fly guard on the, on the door. So I raced in this thing, bang, into the, into the guard. This big thing. And they told me later, if I'd been stung by that, I would have known about it, because they're brutal. And the best way to get rid of them, apparently, is just to run into trees, because they can't go after you. Once they lock on, they don't let go. Frightening. Similar type of thing, possibly, was being talked about here. Something that, when it bit you, was severe. So that's the first of the second bunch of three. Then you've got the death of the livestock, which could be related to it. The livestock died. Those that were out in the field, who would have been afflicted by it, um, most likely, they then died. And then you've got boils coming out on people. Is that related as well? I'm going to make a case that maybe these things are all related from a natural point of view, but supernaturally. The final three before the absolutely final judgment are more severe again. They bring fear and death. You've got hail and firestorms that anybody outside would be killed by them because the hailstones were so big. Cattle people, it tells us. You've got locusts that came in and just devoured any remaining foliage anywhere in the land. Such destruction and death. And then you've got a darkness that it says could be felt for three days. That must have put such fear into the lives of people. So you've got three groups there of an increasing severity, in a sense, of the judgment of God and the experience for the people. Irritation uh, to more severe with destruction, then to fear and death. God is gracious, isn't he? Graciously working. One thing to point out as well in the matter of uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart. In the first five plagues, which with I'm dealing with today. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart during those five. When God was being most gracious to him, Pharaoh was the one hardening his heart. There's something else I think it's worth noticing, and this is just to try and retain in your head about the, the pattern of these. If you look at these three in their three groups, um, the first sign of the group of three. Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh at the river Nile. That's repeated, the first one of each three. The second one of each three, they come to Pharaoh 
and it says they went into him, which most likely would speak of going into the palace. The third one of the group of three, there's no warning at all. What does that mean? I think with the Lord saying to Pharaoh, or to Moses and Aaron, go and see Pharaoh at the river. Come on to why that's important in a moment. He says alongside that, he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. 7 verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. 8 verse 22, you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. The first of the three. The second sign, when they go into Pharaoh, the Lord is saying, you're going to realize that I act without permission. I, I just am who I am and I will act. 8 verse 2 says, I will plague your country with frogs. 9 verse 3, the hand of the Lord will fall with very severe plague on your livestock. That's when they went in. The Lord is going to act regardless. The third sign where no warning is given to Pharaoh. God says, I will act however and whenever I like because I am the sovereign. Without notice and without impunity and with impunity. 8 verse 18 is an example of it. Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. There was no warning given. So the first one, they go down to the river to give the warning. I will show you who I am. Second one, they go into Pharaoh in his palace. I'm going to act. And you can't stop me. The third one, no warning. I can act whenever and however I like with impunity. That's our God. Notice that we read uh, the verses that God provided uh, mercy as well. You're thinking, where is God's mercy in all of this? His mercy is in his patient extension of his grace, an opportunity to respond to him. But he also cares particularly for Israel, doesn't he? We see that from plague number four onwards, that they are isolated from the effects of God's judgments that are coming. The irritations, doesn't tell us whether they were immune from them or not, most likely they suffered along with the Egyptians. But as things got more severe, there was mercy extended to God's people. And God pointed it out to Pharaoh. There's something in that. We are not immune as Christians from the things that happen in this world. But there is accompanying our faith. Something which is distinctive about God's care for us. We can declare, even in the most difficult of circumstances, that we know that God is for us. Rather than hating God, we love him, even if circumstances are hard. God had made a promise to Abraham, and then repeated it to Isaac and to Jacob, and then repeated it to Moses, to the people. I'm going to bring them out. You're going to have an inheritance. God had made that promise. And he would achieve it, whatever it would take. But for us... To be brought to himself. God would do whatever it would take. And it would take the death of his son. What mercy God has given to us. It says Israel was delivered from the flies. From the death of the livestock. From boils and from hail and from darkness in the firstborn. It was something that the Egyptians saw. This hasn't touched them in the same way. When these things of life come at us. Do people say the same? It hasn't touched them in the same way. 8 verse 22 and 23 is interesting. He says, I will set apart the land of Goshen that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He's not a God who is removed. He is right there with his people 
I'm here. He was the means of the protection for his people. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. The Hebrew word behind division there is actually the word that's translated redemption elsewhere. God was going to value his people highly and pay a price to bring them out. Now then, what about these miracles themselves? Let's just get on to this. I am suggesting to you, because I am persuaded by this, that God was using a cycle of natural processes in a supernatural way over a period of more than six months. They, the Egyptians, were seeing something on a scale that was unprecedented. They'd seen something like it before, but not on this scale. And it was something that was a building natural cycle. Now, let's be careful with this. I am not attempting to provide a scientific explanation that therefore says we don't need God in this. I'm not doing that for a moment. God is the creator of the universe. He has absolute control over everything. If he does something supernatural with natural processes, it's his prerogative to do so. The Lord Jesus displayed the same power over the natural processes. Supernaturally. So I'm not explaining God away. For me, rather, it heightens my delight in who God is. That he is all-powerful and in absolute control of everything around. And that then alters my perspective of the things that would happen even in the environmental setting of the earth. The mighty power of God over the created order was being demonstrated. And God is using every day his creation and his created order to reveal himself. Back then to the Egyptians and to the Israelites too. But he does the same thing to us. He was using this primarily towards the Egyptians to show them that they were pursuing futile things. Historians tell us that they had over 1,500 gods. Gods for all sorts of things. Here was the God, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, revealing himself in everything that had happened. One God over it all. The Egyptians had gods for every little natural process that would happen. We'll see that in a moment. First of the five, very quickly, the river Nile to blood. I think, and I say it cautiously for your consideration, I think we should interpret this in the same way we'd interpret Joel chapter 2 verse 31. Where it says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The moon is not turned to blood. It looks blood-like. I am suggesting for your consideration that the river Nile looked like blood. Because in its upper reaches, the Nile way back in uh, Uganda and through the Sudan and so on, every year there was what's known as an inundation, a flooding. That's, it's what the Egyptians relied on, the flooding of the Nile in July-August, so that their fields would be irrigated and then the flooding would go down. This was something above and beyond what they were used to. And there was a supernatural inundation. Washing down red silt and sand, I believe, uh, from Uganda and upper reaches, coming in from the various rivers that feed into the Nile, ultimately. 
And the swamplands of the Sudan as well were full of algae. And you wash all that down to Egypt, to the place where their prosperity was based and focused around the river now. And you have the conditions there that make it look like blood. An algae that starves of oxygen and your fish die. I'm a geographer. I, I'm persuaded by this. It doesn't deny that God is in absolute control. But this was greater than anything they'd seen. The Nile was Egypt's lifeline. The river god was known as Happy. Um, makes me chuckle that one. And Happy was associated with the annual flood. So they were happy whenever Happy appeared. If you get it. Um, but also they thought Osiris, one of their great gods, the Nile was Osiris's bloodstream. So they were used to seeing a red hint in the river at flood time. But this was something else. This was supernatural on a scale they'd not seen before. You notice it says that it was the standing water that was affected, associated with the Nile. It says that they were digging around to find fresh water, which would have been going down into groundwater. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because their source of life for a period of time was in flood conditions and it was undrinkable and it was stinking, but they could dig around. How often we waste our time with things like that. If what we think is the sustaining thing of life, we'll go digging around somewhere else to find it and we don't get it. It says that the magicians and the sorcerers, they were able to replicate it. Well, you could do, take some water from wherever you can find it and use something chemical to make it look like blood. Pharaoh wasn't convinced this was the Lord. His heart was hardened. Two of the sorcerers are mentioned in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 8 it says, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And Paul uses them as an example as don't argue. Don't fight against the things of God. You can go and look that one up yourself. I do believe though as God was working there were satanic forces at work. And let's not underestimate the adversary and his power and what he can do. So here was a nation that, was, that had all these natural processes and they would attribute it to various gods. And they had sorcerers who could do magic things by sleight of hand or chemical changes or whatever. It was a very persuasive thing. But it was all a distraction away from the glory of who God was. And actually it suited them. And that's what we're like as sinners. What we create ourselves suits us better than acknowledging who God is. Satan is good at duplicating. He says he disguises himself as an angel of light. You come into Revelation. There's um, an evil trinity that is there in, uh, in Revelation. God, God has everything in perfection. Satan will copy for the sake of delusion. But notice something, that whenever it came to the creation of life, with the, the gnats coming out of the dust, as it says, couldn't replicate that. Also, if the sorcerers were really going to do something really spectacular, why didn't they turn the river from blood back into what it was before? Or take the frogs out? They brought more up. Satan does not have the power to overcome the things of God, but he has the power to delude by doing things that look similar. So let's be cautious. The frogs, 
We're getting through these quickly. It's getting shorter as we go through. The Dead River, I'm suggesting, would force the frogs out. They were used to seeing the frogs after the floods. But the frogs would normally be by the river. Here you've got a really bad, dead, stinking river. And the frogs are forced out to find fresh water. Where are they going to go? They're going to get out of the sun. We saw a poor frog yesterday when we went on the YPM walk. And it was trying to get out of the sun. With one wizened <coughs> leg, and Angela graciously lifted it and threw it into the lake. And it's probably drowned. <laughs> but the frogs were... He was trying to get to water. And here were these frogs and everything. Interestingly, the goddess of fertility was Heket, and she was represented as having a frog's head. So they thought, the floods come. Happy, we're happy. Um, then the frogs are there. It's a sign of um, the abundance that's come with the river that's brought all of this to us. Uh, fertility is there, frogs, sign of fertility. I wonder in this little section, does Pharaoh begin to show some acknowledgement of the Lord? We read in 8 verse 8, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. I don't think so. I think he was just playing and toying. Why when Moses said, well when do you want that to happen? Why didn't he say right now? He says we'll do it tomorrow. And when it happened tomorrow, then Pharaoh somehow thought he was in control of that I think. So his heart was hardened again. The twistedness of our sin. What about the gnats? Um, they were probably rising as well. It does say though that struck the ground and the dust became gnats. They could have been there. On the ground surface or whatever. I'm not trying to explain it away. I'm just trying to give a supernatural, natural um, understanding of it. To see that God is sovereign over it all. And uses that which is around us to declare his glory to us. The gnats were so small that they probably could barely be seen unless they're in the swarms. Uh, we've not yet done a summer holiday in Scotland because of the, the notorious uh, Scottish midge. But they are so small unless they're together in their swarms. And they're an irritation that just spoil a Scottish holiday, I believe. Is that right? Yeah? So... They're just an irritation, just get there. I think that's the same sort of thing as we're saying. But the, the sorcerers, the magicians, couldn't replicate this. And they said, this is the finger of God. It's not the finger of God, it's the hand of the Lord. Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, despite this one that was coming. What about the flies? I've already said that these were probably bigger flies with serious stings. They were just getting into everything. We didn't read the section about it. I just read the portion that said that there was a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God was protecting his people from that which was very severe here. In a physical way. Spiritually he does the same for those who put faith in the saviour. The land it says was ruined by the flies. That's strong language to say for flies. There must have been such an abundance and the place was ruined. One of the Egyptian gods, Ray, was depicted as a fly. They had gods for everything. It's their way of explaining it. And then we have the livestock death. Now this could have been as a consequence of the flies that had come before. Maybe there was something that was transmitted as a contagion uh, that was given to the livestock, cows, uh, sheep, donkeys, horses, and so on. Anything that was in the field, interestingly, it says. Many of the gods of the Egyptians were represented by these valuable animals. Ra, one of their senior gods, was the calf god. Apis was known as a sacred bull. Hathor, 
was represented by multiplicity of cows. So here you have symbols of strength, which is what they were and value. And God intervenes in his judgment and decimates them. That which Pharaoh and his people had put their trust in, they relied on the river. They thought their fertility that was um, seen in the frogs was, uh, was theirs and their right. And that shaped a lot of their wicked practices. The gnats were a small, tiny thing that were an irritation, which was demonstrating to them that get into anywhere and they need to be careful. The flies, no protection from them again. And here you have livestock, that which they value so highly, just decimated. We put our value, our trust in so much because we're sinners. What are the lessons from this? We've dealt with these five plagues rapidly. But I'm hoping that we can see, as I said at the outset, that God is sovereign over all of creation. He's made it. He's in control. And he uses natural processes, I believe, in a supernatural way to declare the reality of who he is. And if we're blind to that, follow the naturalistic um, propaganda, I'm going to say, that, that is taught in our schools as fact, for example, then that's leaving God out. We're not doing that with an understanding of these plagues in the way I've put it here. In fact, we're seeing that God's hand is in it, not his finger, his hand. God is in absolute control of everything he has made and he will <coughs> declare, continue, his glory in creation and through the workings of his creation. That's why it's good to study and be amazed by the things that we see. Natural processes, of course, can and will destroy and will bring suffering and death. And God permits that. And God may be using it, though, as a sign and a wonder and something of judgment against a broken and fallen world. I think I've said it before here that when floods come in and many people are killed, it's coming into an area where people really should not be establishing their houses and such like and earthquake zones and so on. It's mankind ignoring that which is a place and suffering the consequences. God attacked and decimated the things that were lifelines to the Egyptians. He will do that with us if we're putting our trust in the things of this life only. And maybe he won't. But things like money and success, power, sex, all those things that we think give value and make what life what it is, in a moment can be taken from us by something. A situation, a circumstance that comes. My hope is built on nothing less. Jesus' blood and righteousness and Christ the solid rock. I stand. But God in all of this is merciful. Remember what mercy is. We often describe it as God not giving us what we deserve. That's an aspect of it. But actually, it's this demonstration of compassion. Seeing someone in a predicament, having compassion and going and doing something about it. Like the Good Samaritan. God has done that for us in Christ. He knows that the things that we trust in in this life will not last forever, but Christ does. And he has given him for us. So, God uses both natural and supernatural processes to convince us of his power and that he is there. To grant us opportunity to acknowledge that he is there. Failure to do that is sin. 
and to humble ourselves. Here's the action, to humble ourselves under a sovereign authority. God's revelation of himself in this way is so that we might see him and acknowledge him and humble ourselves. And we do that when we come to the cross and see our Saviour there. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We're alive with Christ because the one who in mercy died on the cross for us lives again and forever. And by faith we come into all of the promises that God has for us in Christ. Let's pray.